This is the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. We are on a journey to find the information that's going to help you play the best golf of your life. Join us now as we dive in. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you know I'm looking for golfers that want to improve their health, fitness, and performance. I'm putting together a 12 to 16 week program for golfers during this offseason. I guarantee that if you put in the work, you will gain 10 plus yards. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, then shoot me an email at jeremy at uphealthperformance.com or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you. Welcome everybody to the Golf Under Power podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. I'm here with special guest, Adam Young. You may recognize him from adamyounggolf.com. Awesome blog content. Um, also on Twitter, he gives lots of great information for golfers. He's a golf coach, all right? He does uh, golf on lessons online, and he's also an author of the practice manual, Ultimate Guide for Golfers. So lots of great content from Adam, and thank you, Adam, so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to talk about golf. I love it. <laughs> awesome. So I always ask by all my guests, how did you get into golf? Um, I, I was a soccer player. I'm British, and so I used to play a lot of soccer, and uh, I remember one time my best friend, he he stopped playing soccer and he's playing this game called golf. And he just used to go to jumbo sales or I think you call them flea markets in America and get these cheap clubs. And, you know, I'd be playing soccer and watch him hitting balls. And at the end of a, a game, I walked over. I don't know what just going. At the end of a game, I walked over and said, give me a go. And I picked up the seven line and whacked it and hit the sweet spot the very first time and watched this ball sail like a hundred yards in the air. And I went, whoa. And he looked at me and went, whoa. <laughs> and I was hooked from there. It didn't happen again for about another hundred swings, you know, <laughs> but I, I got addicted. I just wanted to hit that sweet spot one more time. And so, uh, yeah, I, I got really into it, completely quit every other sport and just went to this soccer field to practice with a, a cheap golf club and a bunch of found golf balls that we used to jump on the golf course and to, to search for. Nobody kicked you off this, the soccer field? Yeah, yeah. I used to aim, go to one end of the soccer field and aim for the goal. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was great fun. I used to spend hours and hours until it was dark. The moment I got home from school, I'd grab the clubs, run over to the field and just hit balls until it was dark. It was, uh, really good i never had any intention when i first started i was like i'm never going on the golf course i just want to i just want to stay in this field and just beat balls i love it (laughs) it progresses from there that's funny it's amazing how many times i hear a very similar story it's like the first shot or you know just the first hole and somebody hits a pure shot and they're like yeah i've been searching it for it forever since you know and just hooked and still searching Uh, all right so I, I heard you talking uh, a little bit about like con- differences between what most people use the word consistency for and how, you know, maybe that that's not the word that most people are kind of getting at or referring to when they're talking about, you know, having a consistent golf game and um, or a consistent shot, swing, whatever it may be. Can you, can you touch briefly on that? I could talk about for hours about consistency and it, it will vary depending on who you ask. What does it mean? I mean, for some people, they're talking about consistent scores um, and that that really doesn't exist in golf because even, you know, you take an amateur, they will shoot, say, a, a 78 one day 
and that's their best run, the first time they've broken 80. And they're like, oh, my God, I've got it. And then the next day they go out and they shoot an 85. And they, hands in the air, completely lost my game. And it's just seven shots different. Now, they're basing. They they think that, oh, I've shot at 78 once. Therefore, I should do that every single time. And that's not logical. That would be like the tour player shooting 63 and saying, oh, I should do that every time I go out. (laughs) No, if you did, you'd be the greatest player ever to have lived. But, um, you know, it's, it's common in, in a tour event that a player will shoot 63 and they'll follow it up with a 70, which is both really good rounds. And so the variability from one round to the next, seven shots is just completely normal. I mean, over the course of a, a season, it, I think it's, at, it's normal for a pro to have a 15-shot swing from their best to their worst. You know, maybe a 63 is the season low and a 78 is the season high. You know, there are even examples of like more Rory McIlroy shooting a 61 one week and then the very next week shooting an 81. Um, there are similar stories in, in the same tournament. So consistency of score doesn't really exist. I say the players aim to be better, not more consistent with that because there's lots of outside your control. Move your average down and base your level off your average score, not your best one. I mean, that's the same with distance, right? I mean, someone says, how far can I hit a seven iron? Well, I can hit it 195 if I'm swinging out my shoes and every and stars align. But what is a seven iron for me? It's probably a 175 club, not a 195 club. I can't, I can't remember what I said first. Um, but yeah, 195 would be absolute top. 175 is what I play it at, sometimes even 170. So I'm always giving it, giving a little buffer, allowing for a bad strike. And so for me, you know, I, if I strike a sh- and I am well, really well, you know, hit it perfect, it's going to go maybe 10 yards past the pin, which is fine. You know, that's 30 feet, which is tour average. So it's not a bad shot. And to be honest, that happens very rarely that you absolutely button one, cure it. You know, that's, that's going to be maybe one out of 10, one out of 20 shots, really. So most amateurs, they build their strategy around their best scores and their best shots. And that's just not what pros do. Um, and so one of the reasons why, say, I'm more consistent or Jim Furyk is more consistent is because they understand that they make errors. And so their strategy is based around that. Um, and so they can, you know, even on their B game, they can, they can make that higher end score much lower. Uh, but again, within, within reason. As I said, tall pros have a 15-shot swing. So, I mean, we talked two things there. We talked how score is not consistent and how um, players understand that they make mistakes so they should build strategies around that, which is a, a strategy of making things more consistent overall. Um, in terms of movement, even, so people might say, oh, well, I don't care about consistent scores. I just want to strike it consistently. Well, actually, probably about 80%, maybe even 90% of amateur golfers with, you know, below a 20 handicap even, they do strike it consistently, just consistently poor. So, you know, I'll watch, a player will come for a lesson and they'll say, oh, I don't know what's wrong. I've just lost some distance. Things aren't feeling good at the moment. Haven't got a clue. Can you check my swing? And within two shots, I see, oh, they're hitting out the toe or they're hitting out the heel. And I just watch them for a few shots and I see if they recognize it. I ask them a few questions. What do you think is going on? And they usually tell me, oh, well, I'm, 
not turning my shoulders 100 degrees or I'm not doing this or that. They never mention the strike quality. And so what I do is I get a, sp a spray can of uh, foot spray, spray the club face, let them hit a few shots, and I just say, have a look. And they look down, and they go, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. And usually there's a very tight dispersion on it, pro level in most cases. You know, it might, it just, it's off center. There might be more heel biased if this is a club, more heel biased or more toe biased. Um, but it's very consistent. It's just consistently poor. And I even showed in a recent video myself that um, I had a toe pattern, a toe bias pattern for, for whatever reason. It just occurs sometimes. Um, and when I'm not thinking, it was very consistent. Now, as a coach, I know how to change that pattern and make it better. Now, in the process of making it better, I went from, a, I think, a, a 15 degree, or sorry, a 15 millimeter average toe strike, because I have a GC quad to measure this to a three millimeter average toe strike. So I really improved it, I basically zeroed it out. However, the spread increased during that because the act of changing something decreased the consistency value. But I showed then how consistency isn't, isn't everything, right? I would rather be less consistent and more centered than consistently in a bad place. So, I mean, that's another topic in itself, right? How consistency isn't all it's cracked up to be. Another example of that, I remember doing a drill where uh, we look at ground contact. So players listening, or I hope they, they do, know that the club should come down, strike ball first, then the ball leaves, and then the ground is contacted. So ball first, then ground. And so I did a drill where we looked at ground contact, and I actually did an exercise with amateurs. And so I would hit a shot, and it would be half an inch behind. Then I'd hit the next one. It'd be half an inch in front of that line. Then I hit one on, on the line. And so I had a variability over the course of 10 shots, about maybe about 0.75 inches either side of the line. Now, there was a 30 handicapper that was doing this same test, and he, he had a variability of zero. In other words, he was hitting the exact same spot every single time. So he was incredibly consistent. The problem was he was hitting three inches behind every single time. And so, again, that was another teaching moment. It's like, well, I'm less consistent than you, yet my outcomes are better, right? I'd rather be more, I'd rather be more centered and slight, have slight variability than to be perfectly consistent in the wrong place. So, you know, when an amateur asks me if I want more consistency or tells me I want more consistency, I first say, well, let's, let's see if you're already consistent or not. Maybe it's not consistency you want. Maybe it's just a change, an improvement that you want. Um, is all this making sense so far? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. There's just lots of different variables to, to golf, and so there's lots of different ways, so it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, we've talked, there's so many things to consistency. We talk consistency of score, consistency of strategy, um, whether a player is or isn't consistent. I call that biological consistency. So basically how repeatable is their movement. Uh, mechanical consistency for me is, is the movement good? You know, so I'm mechanically consistent. I'm hitting the sweet spot. I'm hitting the ground in the right place, but I might not be as biologically consistent. There might be a little variability either side, depending on how much I'm practicing. Uh, you know, as you know, as teachers, we uh, coaches, we often don't get to do the thing that we teach as much. So, you know, my players play more than I do, but uh, due to having better technique, I can get away with not playing more. <laughs> 
you know, I can get away with a little bit more variability. Uh, another example of that would be um, if you imagine the swing as a hula hoop. So you've got the club head, it travels on the downswing, then it will reach the bottom of the hula hoop and then it starts to come up again. So it's a big circle around our body. And we call the bottom of the hula hoop low point. So perhaps some people have heard that mentioned, low point or low point control. Now, if you are like a pro, you will have the low point in front of the golf ball, sometimes four to six inches in front of the ball. And that's how the club comes down, hits ball first, and then continues downwards into the turf. And when you have that, then you can get away with a little bit more up and down movement. So what I mean by that is think of the hula hoop moving shallower or nipping the top of the blades of grass or digging deeper in. So we have shifting the low point forwards and back relative to the target. And we also have moving the hula hoop up and down. And so like I said, if the, if the low point of the hula hoop is in the right place, okay, in front of the ball, you can get away with a little bit more up and down movement. When the low point is behind the golf ball, as in most amateur swings, you have no margin for error. If you move up and down a tiny bit, it will be a horrendous shot. It'll either be a bladed shot or a fat shot. And so lots of players then are only able to hit balls correctly or hit decent shots on very good lies, you know, where the ball is sitting up. And so... Yeah, part, part of my job is to look at this player and say, well, what do they need more of? Do they need a better swing? Should we move that low point in front of the ball more? Should we um, you know, change their face strike, even if it makes them less consistent? Or usually when, it, when you get to tall player level, they are good. They might need more genuine consistency. So their patterns are in the right place just they need more genuine consistency. So usually at the tall level, it would be directional consistency that they want. So they might hit one left or right. Very rare that a tall pro is going to fat or thin it. And so when we come to genuine consistency, there are lots of reasons for why that might that inconsistency might occur. Most of them are mental, I will be honest. Um, so for example, a player may overcorrect that's, that, that would be a case for me. So I might hit a shot left. And as a coach, I know how to change that, right? And I know what to do to change it. But then I might apply the wrong dosage of that. I might do something to open the face out. And I might overdo it or underdo it. And then you, you might basically be self-sabotaging consistency. Um, or there may be uh, mental errors such as you know, you're getting frustrated or you're, you're thinking the wrong things. It's been shown that thinking very internally. So thinking about left arm position, shoulder turn, the stuff that most golfers think about, that can actually induce inconsistency. Whereas thinking more externally outside of our body can increase consistency. And there's, there are really interesting reasons for that, at least interesting to me in terms of the motor learning science. And uh, do you need to stop me or anything? <laughs> I told you I'll just go and go and go. <laughs> no, no, I think we'll, we might follow up on some of this stuff. Just to kind of you, you mentioned some of the things of like the low point and, and affect how we can aff maybe affect that. Or um, yeah, yeah. So, so we might come back to some of that stuff. So if you want to keep going, that's 
All right. Well, I'll give you a, that. That goes nicely. So if you say, how do I affect a variable? Um, so when it comes to striking the ground in the right place, which is the goal, there are so many variables that relate to that. So just shifting the hula hoop forwards or back, weight shift will, will relate to that. Your release pattern, whether you release earlier or later, will re relate to that. Um, your swing direction will relate to that. Actually pretty simple for, for low point control. But when it comes to the, the arc depth, so in other words, how deep or shallow that hula hoop is going through the ground, whether it's touching the top of the grass or digging an inch into the grass, that is very sensitive because just a quarter of an inch drop in height can actually lead to hitting two or three inches behind the ball. It's that sensitive. It's not a one-to-one. -one. And it gets even worse than that. There are so many body variables that relate to the height of the hula hoop. If you just change your flex in your knees, say you, say you dropped and added a little bit of flex in the knees, that could easily drop a quarter of an inch in height. Say your spine, any take any one of the vertebra, just you know adds a little bit more flexion or extension. That's going to change the height. Scapular retraction or protraction can change the height. Lead arm flexion extension can change the height. As can re re wrist release. I could go on for about ten or twenty different variables, and it only takes a tiny fluctuation in one of those variables to create a bad shot or a good shot. It gets even worse than that. When you look at the most elite players in the world, they actually change all of those variables every single swing on a subtle level. So no, I'm sure if you've dug into the motor learning research, you'll know that elite performers don't perform the same movement every single time. So there was a guy all the way back in the 30s called Bernstein, and he studied people hammering nails. And he did a really cool thing. He put little light bulbs across their arm at different points and on their shoulder. And he watched these elite blacksmiths hammering nails or carpenters. And what he, he thought would be they would produce very consistent movements. What he found was completely counter. They produced a different movement every single time. But they were still hammering that nail perfectly every single time. So this is really a lot to, to wrap your head around for most people. How can they produce different movements? And this has been studied in all sorts of sports, throwing darts as well. You know, the best players in the world will sometimes throw it a touch higher with more uh, less force and then a touch lower with more force. Sometimes they'll release a tiny bit earlier. Really subtle adjustments, but enough to make a big outcome change. You know, darts is so sensitive and golf is the same. As I said, really subtle changes. There might be a quarter of an inch more scapular retraction, but that's enough to make a difference between knocking it to five feet and knocking it in the water short. And so uh, the question arises, well, when it's this complex and there are so many moving parts, what's the best way to control all of that? And the best way is with an external focus. It, this is where... It, it actually gets simplified. So who was it who says it, it takes someone, any, any fool can make things bigger and more complex, which is what I did at the start of this. It takes a true genius. So I'm trying to bring myself back to genius to, to make things more simple. Um, and so, yeah, what's a simpler version of that? Well, when I'm focusing on, on arc depth, I'm not focusing on all the variables, arm flex, scapular protraction. All I'm thinking of is literally playing a game higher or lower with myself.
all right, brush the tops of the grass there. Let's brush the middle of the grass. Let's brush the base of the grass. Let's dig in quarter of an inch. So you're thinking externally. It's outside of your body. I'm thinking of the club head. Same when we go back to hammer and nails, right? We're not thinking of arm positions. If we do that, we're going to hammer our thumb. You've got to focus on the nail. It's outside of our body. And what happens is when you give your brain that one single focus, it coordinates all the moving parts into um, a synergistic pattern. It, it coordinates them all together. And it'll do it differently each time, but it will do it in a, in a perfect combination. Or at least it progresses to that over time. Um, so the more you practice with that focus, it, it becomes much more, uh, much, much more perfected in the brain. And you can actually interrupt that process by starting to think of individual parts of the movement, which is what every golfer does, right? So why, why is a golfer inconsistent? Because a lot of their thinking processes are inducing that inconsistency. If you're standing there thinking of when you release the club, that might be a good thought process to change the pattern as an overall, but it's also a great way to induce inconsistency, which is why tour players don't make big changes mid-season, because they understand that intuitively, and coaches understand that intuitively. So, uh, so yeah, I, I like to give simple tasks to players that help take all the complexity and give that brain one single focus that it can self-organize around that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I grew up in uh, Indiana where everybody plays basketball, right? And I was always a terrible shot growing up. And then, you know, of course, sometime in my like, when I was like 19, 20, probably to 22 or something like that, I realized, oh, my, my focus on shooting was completely wrong. You know, it always heard, oh, you gotta have like, I remember my coach used to always teach us, you would, you'd reach through a phone booth and then up into a cookie jar and so that's what he would that's what he would always that's what he always told us and so i would always focus on that kind of a movement um but then i realized all i gotta do is look at the back of the rim like one just focus intently on that back of the rim like you were telling with the with the nail and that improved my shooting tenfold just by focusing on that one point i was i was then more consistent even though you know maybe my arms were flared or, or whatever i mean we see it in basketball. All these basketball players shoot differently, right? But they get the same result, especially when we talk about NBA. They're all good shooters. And we see it in golf, too. All these different swings, all these different things. But they get the result that they're looking for of that ball going towards the hole or towards their desired target. I think there's a balance here. I know, I know a lot of teachers who are more mechanical will say, oh, well, you can't just do it anyway. And I agree with that as well. You know, if you're, if you're basketball um, is, is to grab if your basketball throws to grab it like this and try and throw it like that. I mean, that's not an opti- optimal solution. So you probably need a bit of both of it at different points in your career. You know, the, the throwing through a, a phone booth and reaching for the cookie jar might be a good thing that you need to do initially just to get the, the generalizable pattern to look reasonable. And, and like the, in the golf swing, there are certain things that are mechanical musts i suppose if you want to play at an elite level however there are loads of solutions to play at a lower level and when we bring into into play you know physical limitations uh sometimes you have to work around those you know i've taught players with one arm one leg i've taught players who who have fused vertebra or fused spines and they can't make a swing 
like like a 20 year old tiger woods can tiger woods can't make a swing like a 20 year old tiger woods can uh, i remember doing a marathon once and, and for the next two weeks my legs were just shot i had to swing like an old man with just my arms but i found a way of getting the uh, the ball around the course so you can find a solution if you know what the task is and so yeah i, I see a nice balance between those different things but I'm a coach that is far less constraining towards a model. You know, if someone asks me, how should I swing the club? I can give them a model. You know, I'm an ex better instructor. I can give them the 10 P's, the 11 links. I can say, well, this is the model. This is one, this is two, this is position three, position four. Here's where the club should be at every point. I could, I could outline where your knee should be at all those different points. But do I teach like that in reality? Of course not. If I get a Jim Furyk on my lesson T, I'm not going to bring him towards the model. I'm going to say, right, you need more of this in your outcome. You know, is it more distance? Is it more accuracy? Is it more consistency? These are the interventions we can make. Let's pick the one that's least intrusive, the, the one that doesn't change your swing as much. And in golf, you don't have to make huge changes in a player's movement to achieve a really good outcome change. Like I said, if I get a player who's shanking it, right, they come to the tee and I get this all the time. Players, I've, I've had players in tears. I've, I've been to every teacher. I've spent thousands on lessons. I just can't stop shanking it. And I just say, well, let's just do this little task, right? Start with a putting swing for me and try and hit the toe. And so they start with a putting swing, maybe even just five inches back and five inches through. And they can do it, right? In 95% of the cases, they can do it. And then I said, all right, let's progress that to a, a chipping swing. Let's progress that now to a, a pitching swing. And we, we see where the movement breaks down. And then by the end of the lesson, they're at full swing and they haven't hit a shank in the last hour. I'm like, what did we change there? And they said, I don't know. I said, what are you thinking of? I said, well, they said, well, well, I'm just thinking of hitting the other side of the face. I'm like, yeah. Okay, so it's an external focus. It fits in with the 20 years of research, right? I said, what were you thinking of before? Oh, well, my teacher told me I needed to get my left arm here. He told me I was coming over the top. He told me I needed to move my hips. And I said, are you thinking of that anymore? No. I see this so often. Um, and so you can change someone just by changing their intention. I know a lot of people will think, well, yeah, well, I don't want to think of hitting the toe for the rest of my life. You don't have to. Within a day... Or a couple of days, our brain actually changes. We go through something called perceptual adaptation. And you can often find that same player will come next day and they're hitting the toe. <laughs> they need to actually reverse the pattern. They need to try it. And so, yeah, learning how to present the, the club face in different points in space, more toe, more heel, more center, learning how to do that intentionally um, it opens up and it frees you completely from a lot of the mechanical dogma. And this is not to say that you can't be mechanical. If you are Bryson DeChambeau and you want to think of, you know, every single position in the swing, go ahead. But having the ability to present the, the club face in different places in space is more of an external skill. And that's where I separate skill development from technique. And so I, I suppose if anybody asks me what makes me different as a coach to everybody else, it's that skill development is, is a huge portion of what I do. 
And uh, there aren't many coaches who do that at the moment. Some of the, some of the high-profile names that I know of, some some great ones, Cameron McCormack, uh, I think, and Andrew Rice does a lot of that stuff. But most instructors are just purely technical. You know, just move your arm this way, move your arm that way, which is fine. But uh, I'm sure people who've had lessons know the limits to that. Know how how that can make you worse sometimes if it's if it's done too much and in the wrong direction. So what are you, what are some of the components that you would you would say are requisite for for good ball striking then? Um, there's only really two. You have to get your low point in front of the ball. If with an iron at least, uh, and then you have to control the arc depth relative to that. Um, one a simple drill everybody can go out and do is to get into a bunker, rake the bunker flat. I usually use the back of the rake to make sure it's really flat, like a fairway bunker. Draw a line in with a T, and then make a swing trying to hit that line. And see, you can see two things from there. Number one, where's the middle of the divot? And that will tell you where your low point is. I'll give you a real rough idea. And then two, did you contact the line or not? And so if a player's divot is in front of the line, they've got their low point in front of the ball, which is good. After that, we're then just calib calibrating the depth where they go through the sand. With the simple algorithm is deeper will make you hit further behind and shallower through the sand will make make the first point of contact in front of the ball. So there's that combination there of low point and arc depth. If your low point is behind that line, that needs to be fixed first because there's no amount of up and down that will calibrate the ground strike. Um, you, you, you said ball striking, well, the prerequisites for ball striking. That, what I described, is the prerequisite for ground contact, I suppose. The other one is hitting the center of the face. As I said, there's so many different variables to that. The best drill, as I said, to simplify it is to spray the face with Dr. Charles Foot Spray, Dactarin if you're in the U UK, um, CVS brand if you're a cheapskate like me. Um, or there's, an, there's another brand called Strike Spray at the moment that I've used, and I've tested it, and it seems to affect the spin rate of the ball less. So if you're really you know, practicing on launch monitors and things and you want everything to be as consistent as possible, there are sprays that can keep that. But, yeah, just practicing that, and if you want to add a little bit extra to it, intentionally trying to hit toe, intentionally trying to hit heel, recalibrating it. I've got a load of skill-based games that actually structure these things um, depending on your level in, in some of my programs online, subtle plug. Um, but yeah, those are, those are the three prerequisites for elite ball striking. Control low point position, control arc depth, and then control where you strike on the face. If you do that, if you do those three things, that shot will feel unbelievable, regardless of how your swing looks. If you look like an octopus falling out of a tree, but you do those three things, it will feel unbelievable. Um, yeah, those are, those are the three ball striking things. Okay. And are there anything that golfers could do, you know, getting into the off season here for a good chunk of the people, it's starting to get too cold to kind of be outside. So what if somebody doesn't really have the, um, you know, a range that they can go to or something like that, or like a bunker, like in the example you use, is there anything that they can do? You maybe mean, inside in the winter months 
Yeah, I've actually in in the strike plan, um, one of my products again, subtle plug. Uh, I've got a winter module in there that goes through a bunch of variations of the drills that can be done indoors, even if you don't have a ball or a net. I mean, winter is a great time to work on movement patterns. We talked about how it can induce inconsistency. You know, when people get too much variability by thinking about shoulder turn or arm position. Well, it's great to do it in winter because it doesn't matter if you're inconsistent then. Hopefully by the time you've done all your winter reps, it'll be ingrained for summer and you can go back to external focuses. So changing your movement pattern, improving that over winter is good. Um, in terms of the skill drills, you can do them indoors. Uh, so some of the variations that I use, if you're on a mat indoors, you can place a towel behind the golf ball and make sure it's a real thin towel um, and then place the place the golf ball in front of it by maybe four fingers, something like that. And what happens is if you if you hit too far behind it. So if your arc deep depth is too deep or your low point is too far back, you'll hit the towel, basically. And so I get a lot of players to do some dry runs even without a ball. It's like start with the club head in front of that towel, make a swing and brush the grass in front of that towel just to see that they can do it. Once they can do it successfully, I might place a golf ball in front or usually I'll actually place a guitar pick, a guitar plectrum. So, you know, the thing you strum the guitar with and I'll place that in front and I'll say, right, nip that away. And so that is perfect because if you are, if you go too high, or your low point is too far in front, you'll miss the guitar pick. And if you go too deep, or your low point is too far behind, you'll hit the towel. So the only way to successfully clip that guitar pick without hitting the towel is to get both low point and arc depth perfectly matched. So it trains you. It's frustrating at first because your brain has to figure it out and, and organize, or organize it. So it does get frustrating at first, but once you can figure it out, um, it's using the science of, of learning that we talked about having that external focus. You're not thinking of your body. You're thinking of clipping this guitar pick. Um, and, and the body organizes all these variables for you. Uh, I actually had a, a guy from India contact me and he, I suppose this is tooting my own horn a little bit, but he had been to every top teacher you can imagine. I mean, he had spent $10,000 in a day with some coaches and he's a real basic amateur. So he, he was just a real rich guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he suffered with basic stuff like topping the ball. I just keep topping it. I just keep topping it. And, you know, he'd been told you need to squat more. You need to do this with your shoulders and all this advanced stuff. And he said, I, I, I've done three years of that. It's been $30,000 and I still suffered with topping it. In fact, I was worse. And he contacted me and he said, I want to offer you money because you gave away a free course during the coronavirus, which was all about just clipping guitar picks. And I haven't topped the ball in four months. And he said, it's just, a, and I said, what's the difference for you? And he said, well, it's a complete shift in my focus. He said, all I'm thinking of is brushing the ground. Whereas before I was just bound by all of this internal movement stuff. And so I, I hear that all the time. Um, I probably should have taken money off him, but I said, I said, no, it's fine. Just support my, my other work. Um, but I see that story all the time where people are being freed by these simple tasks, these simple external focuses. So yeah, the guitar pick is drill is really easy and you can, you know, change variants of that. Sometimes I'll take the towel away and it's just clip the guitar pick. 
sometimes I'll place the guitar pick and the towel. Sometimes I will place a guitar pick on top of a piece of carpet, a very, a very small piece of carpet. And I'll say, clip the guitar pick off without moving the carpet. And that is almost impossible to do. I mean, that would take Tiger Woods 20, 30 attempts to do because you have to, if you go just a millimeter too deep, that carpet's going to move. If you go a millimeter too high, you go over the top of the pick. So it's a really difficult task. But tall players, they possess these skills, even if they don't use them. So there was a fun little video the other day that someone sent me who knows my work and knows that I, I like this kind, kind of stuff. They sent me Dustin Johnson and Jason Day playing a little game. And what they were playing was, let's swing the driver as fast as we can and hit the shortest drive possible. So in other words, they were trying to nip the top of the ball. <laughs> Dustin Johnson was talking about how he used to practice this. And he said he got it to once where he nipped the ball so cleanly 120 mile an hour swing but nipped the ball so finely that the ball just dropped off the tee and so these players have this ability to control the height in space just by thinking of it right you ask dustin johnson what are we thinking of to do that he's not going to say oh i was trying to flex my lead wrist and he's just saying i'm just trying to hit the top of the ball that's all and so i think that's such a it's so hard for amateur golfers to get into that mindset because they're, they're trained away from that, right? You pick up a magazine or you go on YouTube, everything is internal. It's, oh, Dustin Johnson's a great player because he flexes his lead wrist 40 degrees more than the average golfer. And uh, Jason Day's great because he does this in his swing. It's like, well, all right, it might be part of it, but they also possess these unseen qualities, these skills, this coordination that... Again, many instructors have, have gone away from because they see that as talent. They think, oh, well, that's, that's the God-given gift. No, that can be trained. Coordination and control of the club head in space can be trained. I, I prove it every single day. It can be trained very quickly. Sometimes it just takes a, a change in focus to improve that dramatically. So again, I've gone off on a tangent, but the, the towel drill, guitar pick drills, variants of that are great for low point contact. And uh, just spraying the face, as we said. And if you can't hit a ball indoors, just get a, a foam ball. That will do the same job. Um, or even uh, I use sometimes bottle caps and that will still leave an imprint on the face to where you struck it. So there are loads of adaptations that you can do indoors. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, just makes me think, you know, so we need to practice more some of these, you know, imperfect shots, essentially, rather than trying to always perfect the shot. Right. And I think that's what everybody, you know, everybody goes to the range. They're thinking, oh, I'm trying to see if I can hit that perfect shot and how many times can I do it in, in the bucket of balls. But, you know, play this game of how many different variations can I can I achieve the success off the toe, off the off the heel or, or, or wherever else on the club face. Yeah. And it only takes for you to unlock it. It's not like you have to spend your life or all your practice has to be dedicated towards variability, uh, but you need some portion of it to develop these skills because most golfers are locked on. So when I get a player who is shanking it, and uh, I ask them with a full swing to just try and focus on hitting the center. They can't budge it at all. It just it, it barely move a few millimeters. Players are locked on to their pattern. And 
going back to the start of the conversation, that means some players are too consistent, just consistently poor. And so it requires a, a real jump in the scale. We have to often go to the other end of the scale first and maybe break it down to an easier task in order to, I call it greasing the wheel. So I imagine I say your, your motor pattern is like a really rusty steering wheel. You're locked on. And we need to put a bit of grease on it so you can actually start to maneuver it and get get that car going where you want it again. And so going the opposite end of the scale does that. It's the grease. Uh, you don't need to spend all your time doing that, as I said. But interestingly, I studied this very early on in my career. I, I had a good opportunity because I was having a fresh batch of new people each week. And what I would do is I would test two different approaches. One week, I would just get the group and I would ask them, only to hit the center of the face. So they would have the foot spray and they'd say, right, just try and hit the center of the face over and over. Another group, I would ask them to hit toe and heel. Only that. Just they do that all, all week. And then the other group, I'd ask them to do a mixture of both of them. And what was really interesting was the ones who were trying to hit toe and heel only still outperformed the ones who were trying to hit the center. So that got me thinking. I was, I was like, oh, well, maybe the addition of this is going to improve them. What I was shocked at was actually that, that intervention on its own or that form of practice on its own actually beat the practice makes perfect or the perfect practice makes perfect mantra. So that got that that completely through through me. I, I knew the combination would be the best one, you know, the combination of two of them. But it was really surprising. I mean, you could attribute that to once you can hit different parts of the face intentionally then hitting the center is just finding the middle ground right it's just playing a game of higher lower more in more out and effectively both groups were trying the same thing they were trying to hit a point on sp in space or trying to hit a point on the face but one of them was doing that with uh, the understanding of moving it around. So they built more awareness. So I noticed with those groups, when they did miss hit the shot and I asked them what went wrong, they would say, oh, I hit the toe. They would identify it quicker. Whereas the ones who were only practicing centered shots, they struggled to identify when it was off, off, off center. Or they at least struggled to identify which one it was. You know, they'd sometimes shank it. It would shoot to the right. And I'd say, what went wrong? And they'd say, oh, I hit the toe because they haven't hit enough toe shots to see how the ball reacts. So that then leads into, you know, if they're on the course on their own and they, they get the wrong one, they're going to fix it. And the more they try and fix it, the worse they're going to become, which is where many amateurs are. So there's, there's the awareness of it. There's the identification. There's the ability to rectify it. And that's where all these weird drills, they're called differential practice drills in the motor learning literature. That's where all of these, in my experience, greatly speed up the learning of a player. And they're so out there. I mean, like I said, it's completely counter to, to how most people train, how most coaches think about it. I mean, there's so much resistance to it. I posted in a, in a group recently and I had lots of people resist that. I, I said, I posted a picture of a, a face with split into thirds. You had the toe third, middle third, and heel third. And I said, how many shots would it take you to intentionally hit each one of those and lots of people commented on why would you want to do that it's absolutely stupid and you know even when you show the study that i did it's like oh well it still doesn't doesn't make sense to me is a big resistance to it but you know to each their own like you can take lead a horse to water but 
I'll make them drink sometimes. Thank you guys so much for listening. Sorry, but I'm going to cut this short because this episode was getting a little long, and so I wanted to keep it to my 30 to 45-minute episodes, and we'll have a part two with Adam Young to talk about ball flight loss and to have the wrap-up questions. So check back in a week or so, and we will have that episode up. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed this content on the go. If you found it helpful, please share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. This allows us to reach more golfers just like you that want to play under par. Do you want to be stronger and healthier? Well, I've got a resource, Golf Fitness Tips. It's a free Facebook group where we talk about how to take care of our bodies so that we can play more golf, we can play golf longer in life, and we can play better on the course. If that interests you, then check out the link below or search for Golf Fitness Tips on Facebook.